Panora Kelly was born on March 31, 1854, in Massachusetts to Bridget and Peter Kelly, who were Irish immigrants. When Nora, as she was known, was just a year old, her mother passed away from tuberculosis, leaving Peter to raise Nora and her three sisters on his own. Peter, who had mental health problems, started to succumb to the added stress of his wife's death and his new responsibilities as a widower and single parent. Eventually, Peter had a horrific mental breakdown that culminated in him attempting to sew his own eyes shut while working at a tailor's shop. Peter was sent to a psychiatric hospital, and the four girls lived briefly with their grandmother. In 1860, Nora's grandmother took her and her eight-year-old sister Delia to the Boston Female Asylum, a nearby orphanage for girls. Their older sister Nellie, who had mental health problems as well, also ended up in a psychiatric hospital like her father. At the age of 10, Nora was sent to live with Abner and Anne Toppin and their daughter Elizabeth. Anne did not like the Irish and attempted to wash Nora's nationality away by changing her name to Jane. Rather than treating her as a daughter, the Toppins treated Jane more like an indentured servant, regularly demanding her to work in the house in exchange for her room and board. At first, Jane appeared to be a normal girl. She remained in the Toppin home after she graduated high school, but began having problems after she was left by a fiancé. She attempted suicide twice and began to believe she could predict the future by analyzing her dreams. She appeared to return to her normal self, however, when she began studying nursing in 1880. In 1887, Jane went to work at the prestigious Cambridge Hospital. She seemed to enjoy working with patients who were elderly and sick, spending a great deal of time alone with them. Initially, the other nurses took a quick liking to Jane, nicknaming her Jolly Jane because of her sunny disposition. However, the other nurses quickly soured on Jane when they realized she was stealing money and items from them and instigating gossip behind their backs. They also noticed her obsession with autopsies, which they believed to be strange and macabre. While at Cambridge, Jane began secretly experimenting on her patients, administering different medications to observe the effects. Sometimes she would bring them in and out of consciousness repeatedly, and it was reportedly not uncommon for her to climb into bed with them. In 1889, she left Cambridge to work at Massachusetts General Hospital, where suspicions began to mount as it was noticed a large number of her patients were dying. Foul play could not be proven, however, as her patients were generally already elderly and sick. Jane was fired after one year, at which time she returned briefly to Cambridge Hospital, but was fired again shortly after for handing out unprescribed opiates. Jane then began working as a private nurse for wealthy individuals, one being a woman named Mary McClear, whom Jane poisoned to death while charged with her care. One month later, Jane poisoned one of her own close friends in order to get a job from which she was eventually fired. Jane Toppin's murders continued to mount, in 1895, Jane murdered Israel Dunham, an elderly man she described as feeble and fussy, and shortly thereafter murdered his wife as well, believing there was little point to the elderly woman's life. In 1899, Jane invited her adopted sister Elizabeth on vacation, where she fed her poison during a picnic on the beach. Elizabeth slipped into a coma and died shortly thereafter. In 1900, Jane began renting a cottage in Cape Cod that was owned by Alden and Maddie Davis. 
By this time, Jane was having financial troubles due to being fired from yet another nursing job. When Maddie Davis came to collect the rent for the month, Jane offered her a glass of water, which Maddie accepted. The water was laced with morphine, and when Maddie began feeling ill, Jane injected her with medications that put her in a coma. Maddie later died, and Jane took her body back to the Davis home so she could be buried. Alden Davis, having always liked Jane, hired her to work as the family's private nurse. A short time later, Annie, Alden's daughter, passed away. Jane told the family that Annie had committed suicide because of her grief, but Jane had actually poisoned her. Shortly thereafter, Alden passed away, supposedly from a broken heart. His remaining daughter, Mary, was the next to die at the hands of Toppin. Mary's husband quickly became suspicious of the deaths due to the short time frame, with all of the Davis family passing in the span of just six weeks. Although autopsies were not performed initially, he was able to have their bodies exhumed and examined. The subsequent autopsies revealed that all of the Davis family members had been poisoned. As Jane was the only one who had been with all of the family when they died, she quickly became a suspect with law enforcement. Jane was arrested in Amherst, New Hampshire on October 29, 1901. At first, she denied having anything to do with the murders, but admitted to police she was frequently troubled with her head. She was evaluated by psychiatrists, to whom she confessed killing the Davis family as well as seven other individuals. Eventually confessing to her lawyer, she had actually killed 31 people. The psychiatrist who had evaluated Jane testified at her trial that she was, quote, born with a weak and nervous mental condition, and that she had a lack of moral sense and defective self-control. Jane decided against pleading insanity, hoping that she would someday have the possibility of being released after her sentence was served. She testified at trial and told jurors she was not insane because she knew what she was doing and that it was wrong. After just seven minutes of deliberation, the jury declared Jane insane, and the judge committed her to the Taunton Insane Hospital, where she remained until her death in 1938 at the age of 84. In one of the most disturbing details from the trial, Jane Toppin reportedly told a courtroom of fascinated spectators that, quote, That is my ambition, to have killed more people, more helpless people, than any other man or woman who has ever lived. This episode is about Jane Toppin. and welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McConnell. And Dr. David Morelos. So David, 
You and I were recently watching the newest season of the series Fargo, which if you guys haven't seen it, it's really good. Yeah, it's a great series, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And anyway, in this season, there's a nurse who kills her patients. Don't worry, that's not like spoiling anything. But that got us talking about healthcare serial killers who are also sometimes called angels of mercy which in my opinion is not a very good name for them. Anyway, we were talking about how these types of serial killers often go undetected for long periods of time and tend to have lots of victims. And you said, how have we not done an episode on this? Yes. So here we are. Yeah, it was a real interesting concept. When we were watching that season of Fargo, her character, the the character, and I don't remember her name, unfortunately, off the top of my head, but the concept was really interesting because this is actually not uncommon. Right. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But, you know, it wasn't something that we've discussed so far on the podcast. So, you know, here we are. Uh, I actually researched numerous healthcare serial killers in picking a topic for this episode. And there are many gruesome cases out there. But since I was the one who got to choose the killer for this episode, I chose Jane Toppin. One, because it's just a creepy story that I thought would be interesting to discuss. But two, because she and I have the same birthday. So, you know, that was especially spooky to me. Ah, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. So I found some interesting information on this topic and learned a great deal because admittedly, I didn't know much about this subject. So it seems like every so often you hear a story about a doctor or a nurse who does this, but not to the extent that I would figure there would be a field dedicated to this kind of serial killer. At least you hoped there wasn't. Right. Right? For sure. So one of the articles I read was in reference to a nurse named Niles Hogel, who was convicted of killing 85 patients under his care between 1999 and 2005. Wow. So this was published by a website called Insider, and we'll have a link to that article on our webpage. But anyway, this article goes on to categorize a number of these killers into different groups, starting with the so-called Angel of Mercy, which you already mentioned, which is a very odd name, it seems like. To me too. Yeah. Or the killer who believes that they are showing someone mercy by ending their life prematurely, either to spare them pain or to spare their families the pain of watching their loved one die slowly. Some experts speculate angels of mercy may be doing this due to having gone through an experience like this themselves when they were young, perhaps watching a parent die slowly from some sort of illness. The article goes on to reference an HSK, which is short for Healthcare Serial Killer, named Donald Harvey from Cincinnati in the 70s and 80s. He was convicted of killing 37 people, although he claimed over 90 murders. One of the other kinds of HSKs the article mentions is the so-called malignant hero, which is the person who has what experts call a savior complex and derives pleasure from being seen as a hero for saving or trying to save the person they are murdering. The article states that these people may be in the perfect place at the perfect time since they were the ones who orchestrated the crisis to begin with and will be able to know exactly what is needed to bring back a patient from the brink of death with some kind of miracle cure. In 2001, Kristen Gilbert was found guilty of killing four of her patients by injecting them with epinephrine, which would send them into cardiac arrest. When other medical personnel arrived, they would see her working on the patient. She was eventually caught when co-workers started to notice that Gilbert always seemed to be in the right place at the right time. I actually remember that case. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. To me, this kind of killer isn't unlike the Munchausen by proxy types, such as the Dee Dee Blanchard, who we talked about in season one. 
whereby they are trying to gain attention and or sympathy by being seen as brave or some kind of hero by taking care of someone who cannot take care of themselves, all the while being the one responsible for also making them sick. This reminded me of the case of Lacey Spears in 2015, where Spears was using her son's illness to draw attention to herself and her blog about her son's treatment while she was poisoning the five-year-old with sodium, which caused his brain to swell. I remember that as well. Yeah, that was much more recent. Yeah. So this kind of killer is quite a bit different than the first, as this killing is not done out of altruistic motivations, but for much clearer self-serving purposes. Then there is the sadistic angel, or the HSK that seems to be the most obviously interested in power and control. As the name suggests, these HSKs get pleasure out of having an almost absolute power over another person, being able to determine when and if they live or die, and being able to watch the moment of death at their whim. The article suggests that this is where Jane Toppin falls in terms of this kind of killer, as she had stated that she actually derived sexual gratification by sometimes climbing into bed with her victims and watching them die. One of the interesting points the article makes is one of how HSKs are not generally considered to be antisocial, which enables them to often go unnoticed. In other words, they are generally easy to get along with and show no overt signs of antisocial behavior such as rule breaking or general disregard for others. A Dr. Leno, who was quoted in the article, stated, Medical killers may be rigid, controlling, and intense, but others may perceive them as simply high-strung or serious about their jobs. And that's a direct quote from the article. A Dr. Turner, who was also quoted in the article, stated, An angel of death killing is rather unique in that it speaks to a more complex psychopathology at work in the mind of the predator. And again, we'll have a link to that article on the webpage. But at any rate, Jane Toppin seems to fit nicely into this category. There seem to be signs of psychopathy, in my opinion, as she seemed highly methodical in the way she killed. Interestingly, Jane Toppin was sort of drawn upon for the character Orietta Mayflower, played by an actress named Jessie Buckley in the fourth season of Fargo, which we just finished. In Fargo, Mayflower enjoys killing her patients while collecting keepsakes from them, such as jewelry. Anyway, I won't say more about the character as I don't want to spoil the show for any of our listeners who may go on to watch it, but I did read that Mayflower's character was loosely based on Jane Toppin. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I did want to talk about the same basic concept that I spoke about in our Chris Watts episode, however, which was the concept of externalizing parts of ourselves and projecting them onto others. When this is done with a part of ourselves that we consciously or unconsciously really don't like or even despise about ourselves, in extreme cases, there can be a desire to commit acts of violence or lash out toward the projection. This is one explanation for men who tend to be domestic abusers. There is something weak and vulnerable that their partner exposes or brings out in them. They identify this part of themselves in their partner who generally can express these traits freely and recognizing this loathed part of themselves, they lash out. One of the books that I work with a great deal in substance abuse treatment deals with men who have been abused. The book is called Wounded Boys, Heroic Men, and we'll also have a link to that on our website as well. But it deals with what happens when we learn, usually unconsciously, to repress a side of ourselves. A common example of this is vulnerability and weakness in young boys who are often raised to repress emotions associated with these qualities. 
This is to make us tough, so to speak, so we can win football games or fight off bullies in school or go out into the cutthroat business world. Now, these are generalizations as not every boy is raised this way, especially as time goes on. I think many boys are being more encouraged to be open about their feelings. But I think the general idea is still very relevant for young boys today and how they grow into what is typically referred to as masculinity. Anyway, after years of repressing these feelings, boys can learn to do it so well that they forget there was any original or vulnerable emotion there to begin with. And there are a number of tricks to do this, such as compartmentalization, which is putting difficult emotions aside, usually in order to focus on a task, but never coming back to them and processing them. I know a lot of men who pretend that they are okay when dealing with difficult times in their lives, but in reality, they're just compartmentalizing. Another common trick for this is to convert feelings of vulnerability or pain into anger, which outwardly is a much more powerful emotion. But again, the authentic emotion, which is often pain or sadness, is once again lost. After a number of years of learning how to do this, that is, repress these emotions and learning how to do this efficiently and effectively, we men can sometimes become triggered when we run into someone who can express these emotions we repress, but in a much freer way. This can be what happens in relationships. This can also be why we are attracted to those who are not like us in personality types. So you know the old cliche of the uptight business person being attracted to the whimsical artist type? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, those kinds of matches. Sometimes these can work out in relationships, but often the same reason for the initial attraction is responsible for the breakup later on. What started as a fascination with someone who can freely express what you have learned to repress starts to become a source of friction over time that can drive the couple apart. So what can happen in extreme cases of this basic idea is that one partner is triggered by the free expression of emotions that the other has learned to repress and is uncomfortable with. In men, this can be weakness or vulnerability that he sees in his partner, and he reacts, sometimes violently, with the unconscious goal of sort of killing off this weak and vulnerable part of himself. This sounds like what happened with Taupin, in the sense that she had to learn to really cover up the helpless and vulnerable part of herself as part of her upbringing. She projected her loathing of this aspect of herself onto her patients who were in the most helpless part of their lives, needing professional care in order to survive, and killed them, each time unconsciously believing that by doing so she could kill off the most weak and vulnerable part of herself. Whenever I feel myself being triggered by someone that I know, I have to ask myself why this person annoys me in the way that they do. For me, I tend to get annoyed by people who are too laid back. You know what I mean, Dr. McConnell? Yeah, and that's not me at all. I'm like the opposite of that. Yeah, no, not at all. (laughs) So I get it. I get that. That kind of irritates me too, but because I'm not like that Mm -hmm. and part of me wants to be. Right. Okay. So, well, here we go. People who don't seem to take life seriously, for me, this can be the stereotypical hippie types. So one of my favorite podcasts is one called Here Be Monsters. We both like that. Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, it's really well done. And one of the funniest episodes was about a guy who gets stuck in Coleman, Texas. It's a really funny episode. Anyway, two of the characters from the podcast are a couple of hippies who spend, I don't know, something like two years driving around Central America hunting for El Chupacabra. Normally, these types are like my bread and butter, okay, because they're strange. You know, they're off the beaten path, a little off kilter. Yeah. But for some reason, the idea of being able to take off a year or two to hunt for a mythical creature just annoys me to no end. (laughs) 
I, I don't know. I also once had a friend who was talking about a trip he took to San Diego, and then he stated his dream was to play volleyball on the beach all day, and that annoyed me to no end as well. Not having to take anything seriously in life just reeks of privilege to me. But the funny thing is, I had a close friend once tell me that there was a hidden hippie inside of me. And he's definitely correct, although it would probably be better worded as repressed hippie inside of me. For some psychological reason, I have repressed this very carefree approach to life in my own head to such an extent that others who express it freely can sometimes get on my nerves. That is fascinating because I, you know, I wonder if that's kind of the same thing going on for me as well. So, okay, a little insider information. Dr. Makono can be triggered by whiny do-nothing types. Yeah, yes, this is true. <laughs> Those ineffectual personality types that complain and seem to enjoy being miserable without really doing anything to change their life situation. But that's a secret that doesn't leave this podcast, okay? Yeah, right. Now you told everybody. <laughs> well, it, just in the podcast. <laughs> Yeah, those types tend to trigger Dr. Makono. Not always, but you know, truth be told, every therapist I know has those clients that trigger them because of personality issues. But good therapists usually recognize when this is happening and they know how to manage it. And we realize that it's not the other person, that it's really us. Ah, well, therein lies the rub, right? Right. So the most extreme version of this idea can sometimes spur violence as we attempt to kill off a part of ourselves that we hate that can be effortlessly embodied by someone else. Again, being sick in the hospital is probably the most vulnerable, physically and emotionally, any of us will ever be. So it makes sense to me that Toppin would target this population, having projected her oppressed psyche onto her helpless patients. That seems to me why such vulnerable populations like this, such as medical patients, disabled people, women and children, and the LGBTIQ community can so often be the victims of violence. We have to ask, what drives some people to violently attack the most vulnerable and often harmless segments of our population? So one last example, I'll wrap this one up, but we recently watched the third season of Cobra Kai, which is, truth be told, Jessica and I's obsession right now. Totally obsessed. <laughs> so good. It's so good. I will try really hard here not to give away any of the important plot points, but I will say that in one scene, a character who knows both Daniel and Johnny makes the observation about the two of them being more alike than they care to admit, and that when these two characters look at each other, they see versions of themselves that they don't really like, which is why the two of them are often at odds, but at the same time do seem, underneath it all, to really like and respect each other. So it's interesting how these unconscious dynamics can play out in all kinds of relationships between romantic partners, friends, therapists, and clients, and caretakers and patients. I think that that's a very interesting perspective, you know, um, totally different than kind of the way that I looked at, at this case, which is, you know, kind of par for the course for us. Of course. And, you know, I'm going to get back really to some of the stuff that you discussed at um, the beginning while you were talking. You know, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, serial killers in general and female serial killers in particular. So Roy Hazelwood, one of the pioneers of criminal profiling who worked with the FBI for decades, was quoted as recently as 1998 as saying that there were no female serial killers. Wow. Yeah, we now know that that's not the case. And as is apparent from Jane Toppin, we can see that female serial killers are not a new phenomenon. But how common are female serial killers? 
From the data that's available, it's estimated that women make up approximately 15% of serial killers. However, we know this number may not be accurate since women are generally, or at least were generally, not expected to engage in, in such acts, even by experts, and because female serial killers tend to use quieter and harder to detect methods of killing, such as suffocation or poison, as Toppin did. Yeah, and that makes sense. If they're not getting caught, then they're not going to be counted as serial killers, right? Right. But even if 15% is low, the experts are still pretty certain that female serial killers are much less common than their male counterparts. Just as an interesting aside, when we consider one-time murderers, like people who only kill one person, uh -huh. females tend to make up 10% of this group. So percentage-wise, there are more female than male serial killers than there are female to male one-time killers. Wow. So we talked quite a bit about the motivations of serial killers in our episode on Ed Gein in season two. And the FBI symposium that we discussed suggested that female serial killers have similar motivations to male serial killers. For some, it might be power and control. And for many others, it appears to be comfort or profit like black widow killers who kill their husbands for inheritance or insurance money. Many female serial killers work alone rather than in tandem with a man. They also tend to have more victims than their male counterparts, which at first blush I thought was kind of questionable, but when I started to think about it more, it made more sense to me. So if they tend to not be suspected as often, they may be able to fly under the radar for longer periods of time. Female serial killers are less likely to have criminal histories, which may also make them less suspected, and they tend to kill people who are closer to them both emotionally and physically. As I alluded to earlier, they tend to use quieter methods of killing, and because of that, deaths may not be immediately identified as murders. So when you put all of this together, this can lead to them being able to be active for longer periods of time before being apprehended. And if they operate longer, that means they are also likely to have more victims than male serial killers. In fact, female serial killers tend to have killing periods that are almost twice as long as males, and as a result, tend to have killed more victims once they are finally caught. So what about healthcare serial killers? A paper entitled Sex Differences in Serial Killers by Harrison, Hughes, and Gott which appeared in the journal Evolutionary Behavioral Sciences in 2019, indicated that approximately 39% of female serial killers worked in the healthcare field. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot, right? So that gives new credence to what Dr. Rob and Dr. Louie were saying about ERs being very dangerous places and that the only way to avoid them is to, you know, to stay out of them completely. Well, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. So healthcare serial killers or, you know, HSKs as we've been talking about tend to have killed many, many victims before being apprehended because they often kill people who are expected to die or who would not really be questioned if they die. So Dr. Kin Kin, who is an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the University of Virginia, presented information about HSKs at the annual meeting of the American Academy of Psychiatry and Law in 2014. So she indicated that while the number of HSKs has increased since the 1970s, they're still rare. So even, you know, when we're talking about 39% of female serial killers working in healthcare settings, 
That doesn't mean that every person who goes to a hospital is going to encounter an HSK. Thank goodness. Wow. So there were only 40, and I say only, this is still a lot, but there were 40 cases between 2001 and 2006. Okay, so not a ton, but it's still noteworthy. And these killings often take place in hospitals, but can occur in nursing homes or even in home healthcare settings, although the incidence of these is much rarer. And as was the case with Jolly Jane Toppin, many of these murders are committed using overdoses of medications. Additionally, nurses are more likely to be HSKs compared to other healthcare providers, although there have been physicians who have also been HSKs. A 2006 study by Yorker, Lampy, Lannan, and Russell in the Journal of Forensic Science found that 86% of HSKs were nurses, both male and female. So that's quite a large percentage. So there's something about the profession that attracts this type. Yeah, I would I would think that it's probably them seeking out that particular field mm-hmm. because of like the easy access to vulnerable populations, medications, those types of things. And it's also a good cover because nurses have a really strong and good reputation and well-earned reputation for being caretakers. Right, absolutely. So what was particularly disturbing about this 2006 study was that they found 54 caregivers were responsible for what they believed were 2,113 deaths, Mm. although they were only convicted of 317. Wow. So that means each HSK, if we just took it on average alone, was responsible for 39 deaths. And so I think the question that comes up time and again is whether these types of killers are typically mentally ill. While approximately half of HSKs considered in a 2014 study by Yardley and Wilson had a history of mental health issues, many were related to personality disorders, which as we've discussed in a few episodes, are not generally considered mental illnesses for the purpose of negating criminal responsibility, at least in the United States. And if you think about it, healthcare jobs generally require a level of functioning that would be difficult for someone who is in the midst of a severe mental illness that would be considered a possible basis for an insanity defense. I agree. I agree with that one. I think that that would be very difficult to cover up when you are expected to be competent at a job like being a nurse. Sure. It is believed that HSKs are motivated by the same things other types of serial killers are. For HSKs, it's likely that the most common motivations are thrill. So, you know, they enjoy the act of killing power, and control. This was similar to the reports of Jane Toppin, which indicated she enjoyed being able to take a person to the brink of death and revive them only to later kill them. HSKs may also kill to obtain some other gains, such as stealing the patient's property or belongings. While there may be an occasional case where the person is motivated by a delusional belief, and this would be the visionary killer typology we discussed in the Ed Gein episode, this would be very uncommon. In Jane Toppin's case, she was found not guilty by reason of insanity. At the time of her trial in 1901, in Massachusetts, the standard used by the courts to determine insanity was what is called the McNaughton Rule. This rule actually came from a case in Great Britain in 1843, but was adopted by the U.S. courts as well. I know that we've talked a little bit about the insanity defense in our episode on the Slenderman stabbing, But as a refresher, the McNaughton rule is also sometimes called the cognitive test. 
In other words, according to this rule, a defendant can be found insane if at the time of the offense she had a mental disease or defect which interfered with her ability to understand the nature and consequences of her actions or it impaired her ability to understand what she was doing was wrong. Now, there may certainly be more to this story than I was able to find in doing my research for this episode, but currently the courts do not consider psychopathy or antisocial personality disorder to be mental diseases or defects for the purpose of sanity. In Jane Toppin's case, everything I found pointed to her having more of a personality disorder rather than a mental illness. And given the information we know about how she planned her killings, her self-professed motivations for the murders, and the lack of any signs of a psychotic disorder or other major mental health disorder around the time of her crimes, it seems unlikely to me that had this case occurred in modern times, Toppin would have been found insane. Now again, like I said, there may be other information, but certainly if it was just based on the personality factors, in the U.S., she likely would not have been found insane in modern times. There's been a lot of case law and scholarship on the issue of insanity in the U.S. justice system since that time, so things have certainly changed. And I think we've talked about before how when people do things that are so shocking or brutal and out of the norm, it's common for us to think that there must be something wrong with the person, that they must be mentally ill. So it's really not surprising that at the turn of the century, having a case of a female serial killer who was a nurse who was supposed to help people would be seen as insane. So what do you think makes this case so creepy? I'm curious. I, you know, for me, I think it's that we expect nurses to be helpers, like you said. And so, you know, that is one piece of it. It's just somebody that is doing something so out of character and what we expect. And the other piece is that, at least for me, being in the hospital, like you said, that's such a vulnerable position. It's scary. Right. There, there's just the possibility for things to go wrong. And then having this element on top of it where it's not even just something that happens because of chance or, or bad luck, but somebody deliberately trying to harm you, that freaks me out. Yeah, I could see, again, this being one of those extra layers that Dr. Rob and Dr. Louie could point to in terms of, hey, when you go into an emergency room or a hospital, this is just one of those extra things that makes it a deadly proposition just yeah. to be in a hospital yeah, and in the it, first place. It's just like one of those things I don't even want to have to worry about, right? I yeah. mean, it's like there's too many other things to worry. And, you know, to be fair, like this doesn't happen very often. So, you know, is this where we want to put our efforts worrying about it? You know, hopefully not. But it is. It's creepy. And it is in the back of my mind now. Right. Well, it's again, it really speaks to this idea that anybody, really anybody at any time could be victimized. Right. And we, we, we do these things and we, you know, to try to protect ourselves and stuff like that. But I mean, in reality, we so have little control over what can potentially happen to us. And you're right, in a hospital, you know, if you're ill, particularly, you know, or injured severely, you have to relinquish that control to a surprisingly large amount of other people. Yes. And if just one of those people happens to have some sort of ill intentions, that could, you know, I mean, that could wind up very badly for yeah. you, yeah, you know, I, as a patient. I agree. I mean, it's it's really scary. 
you know, all in all, I think that this is just a, a very interesting case, even though it happened a very long time ago. Right. Um, but, you know, this is still a phenomenon that occurs today. And we hope that it's not very common and that none of us or any of you all out there ever encounter an HSK um, in your lifetime. But we um, will definitely have some links to all of the different articles and studies um, and books that we discussed in today's episode on the discussion page of our website at psychologyafterdark.com. You can also email us from there with any episode topic ideas you have. And we're in the process of putting together our topic list for season four, so we would love to hear what you all want to hear about. You can also like us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychology After Dark. And as always, if you're enjoying our podcast, please leave us a rating or review and let others know about us. Thank you to all of our fans who continue to support us and reach out to us. We love hearing from you guys. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. Thanks for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus, both provided by Gemendo.